0: TD Asset Management welcomes you to this week's podcast. As a reminder, this podcast cannot be distributed without the prior written consent of TD Asset Management. Hello and welcome to the
1: TDM Talks podcast, a podcast where we dive deep into the world of investment markets. We'll share the latest trends, insightful analysis and uncover some strategies that are going to help you navigate the complex landscape of investing. I'm Ingrid McIntosh, Head of Global Sales Enablement, Marketing, and Digital Strategy here at TD Asset Management, and I am thrilled to be joined by some of the sharpest minds in the asset management industry and my colleagues. Podcast today, I've got the pleasure of welcoming back a true maverick on TDAM's investment research team. Uh, You may remember Tarek Ada, currently leads our insights into global healthcare, and aside from helping us make informed decisions in the healthcare space, he really did become one of our most popular experts providing us updates during the pandemic. He's here today so that we can chat about the trending topics in the realm of healthcare and provide insights into some of the great opportunities in the sector. With that said, welcome Tarek.
2: Thanks great for having me on. I appreciate it.
1: Okay. So healthcare was the sector to own last year. It's been mostly forgotten this year and now it's showing real signs of a revival again. Can you start by providing our our listeners with some context on really what's driving the performance and really how it's represented in equity markets more generally?
2: Okay. So maybe before we uh, look at this year, maybe we'll take a step back and look at the big picture and, and then we'll double click on this year specifically. Uh, but firstly, when we do look at the 10,000 foot view and we zoom out even beyond the investment implications, our personal health is our greatest asset. Uh, good health gives us hope. It opens doors to pursue our passions and allows us to enjoy uh, life to the fullest. And as such, healthcare has been codified as a human right with governments, individuals and corporations Uh, spending ever greater amounts into healthcare. So when we take this back into the world of investing, healthcare as a result benefits from many attractive qualities, including strong growth, inelastic demand, and low sensitivity to the economic cycle. And this combination has generated strong returns uh, for investors in the sector with a dollar invested in the S&P 500 healthcare index 30 years ago, uh, worth uh, $35 today uh, ahead of the broader S&P 500. And as, as a result, healthcare is now the second largest sector in the S&P 500 with a 14% weight, second only to technology. Um, maybe turning back to your original question in terms of what has weighed on the sector over the past year, you know, first and foremost has been weak earnings. Earnings in the last quarter were down 14%, and that has been driven by the fact we've lapped some really strong COVID-driven you know, earnings as uh, demand for vaccines, therapeutics, uh, vaccine manufacturing equipment, and testing have all declined. And also this year, we've seen investors leave some defensive sectors, including healthcare, staples and utilities and gone into technology, consumer discretionary, communication services really driven by the large mega cap tech names. Um, but, uh, but those, you know, that rotation, we're probably likely in, in later innings of.
1: Yeah. So uh, I love what you said about it being a really inelastic sector, because it's going to be, you know, core. I know that people talk about sectors, we talk about sectors and investing themes, but I think people love to talk a little bit about stories. And I'm hearing a lot about GLPs, and this is one of the biggest healthcare trends. Can you talk to us about what they are and why they're so popular?
2: Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely correct. Uh, So there's been significant investor excitement around these uh, new GLPs for diabetes and obesity. And the data out of Novo Nordisk uh, select study that we got in August just continues to reinforce the potential. So maybe for uh, listeners, we'll just recap what are GLPs. So GLPs stand for glucagon-like peptide receptor agonist.
1: Everybody knows what that means, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's a mouthful to pronounce, but at the core, the way these drugs work is fairly simple. Essentially, they make you feel full, they make your stomach empty more slowly, and ultimately will make one eat less. Um, so at first, these drugs were really designed for type two diabetes, to lower one's uh, blood sugar, but then they noticed people who take these drugs would lose weight on them. So what Novo Nordisk did is create a higher dose uh, of a uh, of zimpek, they cre- branded it as Bogovi and began selling it in the obesity market in 2021. And this drug is a big step change in the treatment of obesity, driving 17% weight loss, which which is a big deal because if you just go three years ago, the best obesity drug would only deliver 6% weight loss. we're basically running a literally triple uh, the best drug just three years ago.
1: I think what's really interesting about it too, and I've done some of my own research in this, is it's kind of, it's reversed the demonization of obesity and really said, you know, there is something chemical going on in your bodies and you do need support and i think that's been a real game changer in the whole mindset around obesity which is why i think there's been such a terrific take up on on these types of drugs
2: so yeah it, yeah it is very impressive and what's also impressive is that we're now approaching the 20 percent weight loss you tend to get with bariatric surgery where you open someone up you cut their stomach you staple it back down and but now you can get that same impact with just a drug without all the risk and complication of surgery um, and with 700 million individuals globally uh, and 40% of American adults uh, you know, uh, struggling with uh, OBC, there's definitely a long runway for, for these drugs to grow. You, know, and you may be wondering, though, like, what is the catch and what are the barriers in driving growth? And in terms of the rollout, frankly, the biggest driver is just getting enough manufacturing uh, capacity uh, with demand continuing to outstrip supply. And the other uh, barrier in the medium to longer term is just getting employers and government willing to cover these drugs. And they're not cheap. They cost over $10,000 U.S. per year. And historically, that was slow to happen because weight loss drugs were considered not medically necessary.
1: They're vanity drugs. Exactly. Not, yeah.
2: Exactly. But like, but like mental health 10, 20 years ago, social attitudes are changing. And I would expect weight loss drugs will be increasingly covered by employers and governments. And that process really started 10 years ago when... The American Medical Association in 2013 officially recognized obesity as a disease. And fast forwarding to the end of last year, we now have 15 countries providing uh, reimbursement for these drugs, and 50% of employees in the U.S. get uh, reimbursement for these drugs uh, through their employer.
1: I guess the recognition that obesity, if if managed in the short term, actually leads to much lower costs on the healthcare system down the road.
2: Right, exactly. So uh, there are stats that show that the average person Uh, Struggling with obesity costs the healthcare system an extra $4,000 US per year on top of all the other, you know, external external costs as well uh, from, uh, you know, living with the disease. And I think part of what's going to help accelerate adoption going forward is clinical data that shows that weight loss drugs do more than just benefit the cosmetic weight loss. So uh, including areas like, you know, reducing the risk of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, sleep apnea, orthopedic damage. And that's why Novo's select study back in August was so important is that it showed that Rogovi reduced the risk of uh, cardiovascular death, heart attacks, and stroke by 20%. And this will further get uh, more adoption of these drugs uh, by healthcare practitioners and patients.
1: So growth, growth, and growth. I want to pull it back a little bit. And, you know, we're talking about something very specific and it's something that's on everyone's minds, but can we pull it back a little bit and talk more broadly about the sectors that are captured within healthcare? Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so although there are thousands of publicly traded healthcare companies uh, globally, you know, at the end of the day, they all really fall under one of three simple buckets. And I call these the three Ds of healthcare. So these are, one, the companies are discovering drugs. Two, the companies are developing widgets. And three, the companies are delivering services. So uh, the first bucket are the, are the companies that are discovering drugs. So these are your pharma and biotech companies. Uh, but for the mega cap companies, it is a tough business as they're constantly running on this treadmill of panic expiries with internal R&D often having a hard time to keep up. So names like Novo Nordis and Lilly are really more the exception rather than the rule in, in, in this case. So when we invest in this space, we're generally looking for companies that have a combination of distant patent expiries, uh, a large uh, drug development pipeline that can drive revenue growth, and a management team that has historically delivered on R&D and commercialization of new drugs. Uh, the second bucket that we look at are the companies that are developing widgets, this includes uh, medical de- device manufacturers that make everything from pacemaker, pa- pacemaker's uh, surgical robots, artificial heart valves, uh, and the list goes on and on. And the benefit of this group is they benefit from the cyclical growth and the demand for healthcare, but with uh, less R&D risk than pharma and biotech.
1: Because there's no expiry, there's just yeah. more widgets. And
2: it's, a li- and it's a little bit like the iPhone. The beauty of the me- these medical device companies is that no one wants to have, for instance, with the iPhone, a lot of patents with the original iPhone yeah, the original iPhone was launched in 2007. Patents will expire in 2027. But in 2027, no one going to want the original iPhone. They'll want to have the latest and greatest technology. And that's the same thing with these medical device manufacturers. They're always iterating on their products and, and uh, physicians and healthcare community keeps keep upgrading to the latest generation. And that's why even though some of the original patents might expire, uh, it doesn't really impact the business economics because people always want to be on the latest generation of technology. Um, and there's another great group of companies uh, also here are the life science tool companies. And they make basically the picks and shovel uh, required to discover and manufacturing drugs. Uh, so everything from multi-million dollar electron microscopes to basic lab supplies. And what makes them so attractive is that no matter which pharma or biotech company succeeds, they're basically the arms dealer supplying the entire pharma and biotech space.
1: So they all boats get lifted here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, irrespective of that's not even a selection, uh, broadly diversified. We talk about this, um I want to go a little deeper on this sort of continuous cycle of innovation, right? Like what are some of the newest technologies that are driving this progress in healthcare, like which we'd be thinking about?
2: Yeah, so um you know, you know, there's a lot of innovations you know continuously happening across the healthcare sector, and we could probably spend you know an entire uh, podcast about that. but you know maybe i'll I'll highlight you know a couple things that i'm I'm watching uh, watching at the moment. So you know, in terms of you know big themes uh, to watch what I'm watching, include, uh, you know, cancer drugs, Alzheimer's, robotic surgery, uh, new pain drugs, gene therapies, liquid biopsies, and of course diabetes and obesity. You know, maybe double clicking on one of these themes outside of, uh, you know, diabetes and obesity space would be the oncology or cancer drug space, which is arguably one of the more promising ones. And, and the reason for this is that there's still tremendous unmet need in society in search of better uh, cures uh, for cancer. Uh, so for example, if we look at the US today, you know the number of cardiovascular deaths have declined by 20 percent over the last 50 years even though the population in the us has grown by 60 percent uh, during that period which is testament to all the innovations we've seen in that in that space but on the other hand the number of cancer deaths have actually grown faster than the broader population growth up 70 percent over the last 50 years um but yeah in in this case for cancer there's two promising technologies i'd watch out for so first would be mrna-based personalized cancer vaccines This is being developed by Moderna in conjunction with Merck, which is a big player in in oncology. And the way the technology works is that they sequence the DNA of the cancer. They find out what unique uh, markers exist on that cancer cell. And then they create a personalized mRNA vaccine for each patient uh, that will target uh, their cancer. In December, we got the first glimpse of that data from Moderna. It was a phase two trial in melanoma, kind of skin cancer. And what it showed is that a report is that it patients that had the drug uh, got a 44% reduction in the recurrence of cancer, um, which is more effective than what many people expected. And then, yeah, then just to close off, one another uh, development in oncology space is the emergence of antibody drug conjugates. Basically, what makes those drugs unique is that they combine the precision of an antibody-based drug like Merck's Keytruda, but also a cytotoxic agent like chemotherapy attached to it. So the idea is that when the drug reaches the cancer site, it releases the chemotherapy warhead directly at the cancer site, which uh, means you can deliver more chemotherapy directly at the cancer site while limiting the toxic effects uh, elsewhere in the body.
1: Yeah, the cancer doesn't kill you, the treatment will, is what we used to say, right? Yeah. I think what I, what I tend to see more too is This idea of living longer with cancer, so that sort of health sustainment, like recognizing that the cure isn't the be-all, but the treatment um, is part of that. Is that another growth area in the cancer space?
2: Yeah. So I, I guess the one thing with cancer is that we're still looking for the, you know, the silver bullet that can cure cancer, and we're still many years away. But a lot of the innovations we've seen in the cancer space are basically allowing us to live longer. So the idea is you have one generation of drug that can extend your life by a year, and get another generation of drug that can extend your life by another year, and you string along a lot of these drugs together, and you can extend your life by, you know, one, two, three, four years. Uh, some of them are obviously more effective than others, but uh, definitely the most effective thing for cancer is early detection, and there's a whole set of other innovations that are trying to work and trying to identify cancer earlier. But... Um, There's definitely still a long runway for innovation to grow in the cancer space.
1: I think of drug innovation, healthcare innovation is a pretty competitive space, especially with the pharmas and obviously everybody's racing to try and find those cures. We've talked about this in some other podcasts, specifically those about AI. But can you maybe talk about the role that artificial intelligence might be playing within the healthcare sector? Are we starting to see some emergence of that?
2: Yeah. So we've obviously seen a lot of chatter about chat GBT and consumer use cases for AI. We haven't seen as much in terms of healthcare, but that, that said, under the hood, there are quite a few developments happening. So we can have AI used to diagnose and, and, and do treatment planning in cancer. You can use AI for predictive analytics to intervene earlier in a disease progression. You can use it to improve... Uh, You know, surgical robotic outcomes. But personally, what I think the biggest opportunity is for AI in the healthcare space is to improve uh, drug discovery. And this is because discovering a new drug is a difficult endeavor. It's very expensive and it usually fails. So,
1: Drug companies aren't always incented to do it either, right? To do the
2: R&D work. Exactly. So... yeah, this makes drug discovery, you know, very difficult, and also the cost of drug discovery has gone up quite a bit. It used to cost less than a billion a dr- billion dollar twenty years ago to discover a new drug, and that cost has gone up to three billion a year, three billion per drug. So, um, you know, so while you know AI, you know, driven drug discovery has been talked about for thirty years, what is finally making it more realistic is the fact that we've had big advances in GPUs. And we can simulate how a, a hypothetical drug would interact in the human body by running trillions of calculation in the cloud. And the second thing has been more ac- accurate application layers that can model how potential drugs may interact in the human body. So all in, using AI and drug discovery can potentially shave two to three years off the uh, you know, time needed to bring a new drug to market. It can reduce the number of drugs that would have to be a stress test in the lab. And increase the probability of success. So, so all in, what does this mean for the pharma and biotech companies? It probably means they can probably save a couple hundred million dollars on the cost of developing a new drug. At the same time, they can also potentially bring more drugs to market. And for society as a whole, we also benefit because uh, there's the potential for more drugs that can cure previously unmet needs ranging from cancer, Alzheimer's, and, and many other diseases. So in the simplest terms, AI
1: is a huge productivity boost? Yeah. To the healthcare sector.
2: Exactly. I just think it will take, uh, in, 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 unlike consumer use cases in, you know, it, for AI, I think this is a, a story that'll play out over five, 10 years, but definitely it's a, it's a very real story. Yeah.
1: I'd love to see in a few years too, seeing AI really play a role in crowdsourcing, you know, the the identification of rare diseases and like the, the, those diseases that don't get well covered, but that's, that's for another podcast. It's interesting when we, you and I were chatting before this, we were really talking about healthcare as a gross sector. Like, Let's talk a little bit about that. Let's really drive home that point for our listeners because I think, you know, we've, we've talked about really cool innovation. We've talked about the sustainability of the healthcare sector, but truly let's talk about it as a growth opportunity.
2: Yeah, definitely. I could be very constructive in the healthcare sector when taking a multi year view. And it's driven by two things, as you mentioned, it's a growth sector. And what drives the growth is two very, very simple things. So, first is a growing and aging global population. As we all get older, we all consume more healthcare services. And uh, that's the first thing that everyone intuitively understands. And the second driver of growth in healthcare, which is arguably more important, has been innovation. With uh, the sector uh, continuing to spend more on research and development each and every year. And that means that the pipeline for innovation will remain robust for many years to come. So, so all in, when you combine demographics plus innovation, which are the two drivers, healthcare spending in the U.S. has grown at 8% uh, compound annual rates since the 1960s. That's only 2% faster than broader GDP growth, but as you know, through the power of compounding, that mm-hmm. 2% extra over adds time up. adds up to quite a bit. And, and that will, should continue for many years to come because demographics are written in stone. We know for the next 20 years, demographics will continue to be a tailwind for the sector, maybe a little bit less so, but you know, beyond, beyond 2040 is a long time away, and, um, and innovation will remain strong. So overall, healthcare should continue to post uh, stronger growth uh, than the S&P 500 over the longer term.
1: So that's your long-term view, but we started this narrative with a conversation about why now we might be particularly bullish. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: You know, earlier in the year, I was a bit more cautious on the sector, but, you know, fast forward into today, I'm more constructive for, for two reasons. So first of all, the sector is now trading at a discount to the S&P 500 once again. So valuations are, are attractive here. And second, going into 2024, the narrative around healthcare will change. This year, it's been Uh, We have uh, all these COVID products are not selling anymore, whether it's vaccine, testing, therapeutics, Uh, but going into next year, not only you won't have the headwind from these products no longer selling, but you'll also benefit from the tailwind of a lot of these new innovations selling more and more, whether it's in diabetes, obesity, cancer. So overall, the narrative around healthcare will very much change going into 2024. And I think that will help improve sentiment around the sector.
1: And then how do we think about healthcare and portfolio? So in your role, leading the research around the healthcare sector, you're advising our portfolio managers and making the recommendations on the allocations?
2: Yeah, so when it comes to healthcare, generally, you know, my, my my view has been we should follow a core and satellite approach when it comes to investing in healthcare. The core is very much driven by companies like the health insurers or life science tools that benefit from the secular growth of the sector without having to take individual R&D risk and individual drug companies or individual medical devices. So that would that generally is my pre- preference, to have those companies as the core of the portfolio. But then as a satellite, try to include companies that benefit from sector themes that have a lot of potential, whether that is obesity, diabetes, cancer, uh, robotic surgery. Uh, those companies, you have to be a bit more careful when you invest in them. They have different tail risks, different R&D risks. But if you buy them at the right valuations, with the right tailwinds behind them, they can perform very well over time. And that's generally the way i've I've tried to approach a sector.
1: Tarek, so much amazing information here. Thank you so much. We've covered a lot of ground. If I sort of summed up for you, we've we've really given our listeners a deep dive into what drives the healthcare sector, what it actually looks like, what are some of the themes and and why a growth sector. We uh, your work and the work of our research firm uh, benefits all of our fundamental equity strategies here at TD Asset Management. Tarek, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Ingrid. Appreciate it.
1: And for our audience, remember, you can always get the latest expertise from TD Asset Management. Follow us on Twitter at TDAM underscore Canada and on LinkedIn at TD Asset Management. Thanks, everyone, and stay healthy.
0: The information contained herein has been provided by TD Asset Management and is for information purposes only. The information has been drawn from sources believed to be reliable. The information does not provide financial, legal, tax, or investment advice. Particular investment, tax, or trading strategies should be evaluated relative to each individual's objectives and risk tolerance. Certain statements in this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are predictive in nature and may include words such as expects, anticipates, intends, believes, estimates, and similar forward-looking expressions or negative versions thereof. Forward-looking statements are based on current expectations and projections about future general economic, political and relevant market factors, such as interest and foreign exchange rates, equity and capital markets, the general business environment, assuming no changes to tax or other laws or government regulation or catastrophic events. Expectations and projections about future events are inherently subject to risks and uncertainties, which may be unforeseeable. Such expectations Expectations and projections may be incorrect in the future. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance. Actual events could differ materially from those expressed or implied in any forward-looking statement. A number of important factors, including those factors set out above, can contribute to these digressions. You should avoid placing any reliance on forward-looking statements. TD Asset Management Inc. is a wholly owned subsidiary of the Toronto Dominion Bank.
1: TD Asset Management operates through TD Asset Management, Inc. in Canada and through Epic Investment Partners, Inc. in the United States. TD Greystone Asset Management represents Greystone Managed Investment, Inc., a wholly-owned subsidiary of Greystone Capital Management, Inc. All entities are affiliate and wholly-owned subsidiaries of the Toronto Dominion Bank.